0: Welcome to Music for Life, enhancing the Armstrong concert experience. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. In today's episode, we will discuss violinist Ray Chen, his pianist Julio Elizalde, and the most crowd-pleasing piece on their recital program at Armstrong Auditorium. Ray and Julio will grace our stage on Tuesday, November 28th. The final work on the program is the most well-known Hungarian-style gypsy fiddle music, a piece titled "Chardosh" by the Italian composer Vittoria Monti. We will explore this fan favorite, as well as the Chardash folk dance. Plus, we also have an exclusive interview with Ray Chen himself. So stick around for some Chardosh and for some Chen, today on Music for Life. This season on Music for Life, we have been exploring aspects of music history and the standard repertoire that relate to the concerts we will feature on the Armstrong Auditorium stage to enhance the Armstrong concert experience, as our tagline states. The past few episodes on Music for Life, we have been exploring the program for violinist Ray Chen and pianist Julio Elizalde. The program will begin with Ludwig von Beethoven's first violin sonata, an ingenious first try at this kind of work. And when we discussed this piece, we showed how Beethoven used a traditional format for this three-movement work and how, if you know how to follow this piece, you are well armed with knowledge of how to follow most sonatas performed on concert stages around the world. After the Beethoven, Ray and Julio will team up for Camille Sasson's first violin sonata, a four-movement work that is considered so difficult at the end, the composer thought he might have asked too much of the performers, both the violinist and the pianist. He nicknamed it the Hippogriff Sonata, after a mythical half-eagle, half-horse, possibly the only creature that could play such challenging passages at the end. ¶¶ After the Saint-Saëns and an intermission filled with delectable refreshments, by the way, as Armstrong Auditorium is known for, Ray Chen comes out by himself to perform the fourth violin sonata by Eugène Izaïe. This piece shows off the unbelievable abilities of the solo violin, making you wonder, all that came from one small instrument? Then Julio Elizalde joins Ray for the next set, the popular Spanish suite by Manuel Defaya, based on a vocal work Defaya wrote and based on folk melodies and styles from all over Spain. ¶¶ Finally, Ray and Julio will present the ever-popular Chardash by Vittoria Monti. You'll notice that the program takes us all over the European continent, which is why we've marketed this evening as a journey across Europe. We have music of Germany, France, Belgium, Spain, and, in this last case, a Hungarian folk style adapted for violin and piano by an Italian composer who spent most of his life in France. Now, all the previous episodes that go in-depth to these other works can be found in the archives at kpcg.fm, kpcg.fm. You can also find these on SoundCloud and iTunes, but today we will briefly explore the Chardash, and as promised, we also have an interview with violinist Ray Chen. Before we get to that, I want to launch right into this discussion of the Chardosh. We will talk the general folk style, and then I'll give you a quick tour of how this particular work is structured that Monty wrote, and what goodies to listen for. We'll listen to a violin piano rendition of it, then we'll talk about our performers, get into our exciting interview with Ray, and then finally I'll play you an astounding violin orchestral recording of this beloved work. All right, so the chardash is the national dance of Hungary developed in the 19th century from an older Hungarian dance, which I won't pronounce, but it literally means Hungarian circle. It is either a two beat per bar or four beat per bar dance with syncopated rhythm, meaning a lot of the strong material comes in between beats or on usually weaker beats. It begins with a lashu, or the slow section, then is contrasted by the frisch, or the fast-paced section. It can be danced by both male and female dancers. Female dancers don a traditional wide skirt that takes a distinctive shape when they twirl. The history of the Chardosh begins with arguably one of the greatest statesmen in Hungarian history, Count Istvan Széchenyi. While attending a ball at the National Club in Budapest, he made the remark that there were no programmed Hungarian dances he and another baron there compelled a few Hungarian men to perform a Hungarian dance, and by the next ball, multiple couples joined the baron and his sisters in a traditional Hungarian dance. Sooner than later, despite the higher-class balls featuring German-style dances, the national dances of Hungary garnered more interest. Two new forms of Hungarian dance came on the scene, the Hungarian round dance and the even more popular chardash, named after the village inn it was performed at, the Charda. Both the upper and lower classes welcomed it due to the sense of duty to their national cultural heritage. Many composers since have written a chardash, such as the Hungarian Franz Liszt and Mark Rojavolgi, who is known as the father of the Chardash. The Chardash can also be found in the opera Coppelia by Leo de Lieb, in the opera Die Fledermaus by Johann Strauss, Jr in the famous Zigeunerweisen by Pablo de Sarasate and even in the ballet Swan Lake by Peter Tchaikovsky among others. When Brahms created a set of Hungarian dances, his most famous one, number 5, was mistaken by the composer as a traditional folk song in the chardash style, though it is a chardash Oops, it's one composed by another Hungarian-born composer, not a folk song at all. It was actually composed by Hungarian-born Bela Kaler. Here's a little of Bela Kaler's Chardash. That's one of the great oopsies of music history that was a piece by Bela Kehler that you might have thought was a piece by Johannes Brahms, one of his most famous pieces, in fact, right? Though that sounds a lot like Brahms' Hungarian Dance Number no. 5, which Brahms thought he was basing on a folk tune, he was actually basing it on an original composition by the Hungarian composer Bela Kehler. Poor Bela. Brahms was the one who got famous. But nonetheless, that was a piece based on the Chardash folk dance style of Hungary. And we are talking about this Hungarian style and how this dance style worked its way into a number of fine art compositions and was adapted by many composers throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. The Chardash we are discussing today, a composition by Vittoria Monti, is one of the most famous versions of this dance written for solo violin with piano accompaniment. And just as the chardash style was popular among composers throughout the past two centuries, this chardash has also found its way even into popular culture today. Years ago, in a 1951 Bollywood movie, and earlier in a 1947 American movie, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And in our day, being heard in a couple of TV shows, and even in a Lady Gaga song. So let's talk a little bit about this specific, famous work by Vittorio Monti, which is how violinist Ray Chen and pianist Julio Elisalde will finish their November 28th program at Armstrong Auditorium. The piece was composed in 1904 for solo violin and piano. The form of the piece is pretty easy to follow. It has a slow opening section, then a fast section, then another slow section, than a fast section. Those sections can be broken down further based on the melodic material that Monty writes, but I think it's easiest to think of it that way. Slow, fast, slow, fast. It all revolves around D minor. But the final fast section gives us some material in D minor and some in the corresponding D major. This helps give the piece both a cheery and exhilarating conclusion and which is pretty common for showy pieces that are in minor keys or more somber keys to end in a major or sunnier key. The first slow section is characterized by this plaintive melody. The next section, our first fast section, is characterized by this melody. This is where syncopation can be heard, the rhythmic device we mentioned earlier, which puts material on generally unstressed or weaker beats. In this case, most of the melodic material goes between the beats. Here, I'll snap the beats, and then I'll play the melody again, and you can hear that. The third section, back to a slow tempo, is in D major. What's unique about this section is the violin, after playing the melody once, plays it again in what's called harmonics. If I can explain briefly, a violinist changes the pitch of the string by pressing it all the way down to the fingerboard with the left-hand fingers. This shortens the string and therefore makes the pitch higher. Now, if the violinist doesn't press the string down all the way, but merely touches the string lightly, one of the overtones of that string is heard. What Monty calls for in this section is for the violinist to shorten the string with one of the left-hand fingers and then have another left-hand finger touch the string five half steps higher, so one finger is pressing down all the way and then basically like the pinky is the one just touching the string five half steps higher. This creates what are technically called stopped harmonics, or as you might hear it, a whistle-like tone to the instrument. These tones you are hearing are two octaves higher than the note as it is written on the page. I'm going to play a tiny portion of that section from the recording so you can hear this here immediately. After that quiet, whistle like harmonic section, we return to one final fast section which contains similar material to what we've heard earlier. So let's hear a recording of the violin piano version, as that will be heard on our Armstrong Auditorium stage. And this here is a recording of violinist Aladar Mozi and pianist Danica Moziova. <laughs>
1: I'm violinist Ray Chen, and you're listening to Music for Life on KPCG.
0: I'm your host, Ryan Malone, and in today's episode, we are exploring the famous Chardash folk style, Vittoria Monti's beloved Chardash, which we just heard, and we will also be speaking to violinist Ray Chen in the lead-up to his November 28th performance at Armstrong Auditorium. We just heard violinist Aladar Mozi and pianist Dani Chamoziova in that violin-piano recording, And after I play the phone interview that I had with Ray Chen, we will hear another version of Chardash, this time with orchestral accompaniment. Before the interview, let me briefly introduce you to each performer. I want to start with Ray Chen's pianist, Julio Elizalde, praised as a musician of compelling artistry and power by the Seattle Times. The gifted American pianist is a multifaceted artist who enjoys a versatile career as soloist, chamber musician, artistic administrator, educator, and curator. He has performed in many of the world's major music centers to popular and critical acclaim. Since 2014, he has served as the artistic director of the Olympic Music Festival near Seattle, Washington. Julio has appeared with many of the leading artists of our time. He tours internationally with the world-renowned violinist Sarah Chang and, of course, Ray Chen, and has collaborated alongside prominent musicians like Itzhak Proman, Stephen Hough, William Sharp, and the members of the Juilliard, Cleveland, Kronos, and Brentano String Quartets. Julio is a founding member of the New Trio with violinist Andrew Wan, co-concertmaster of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra, and Patrick G, cellist of the New York Philharmonic. The new trio was the winner of both the Fischoff and Coleman National Chamber Music competitions, and it has performed for leading American politicians such as Henry Kissinger, Condoleezza Rice, President Bill Clinton, and the late Senator Ted Kennedy. Julio Elizalde is a passionately active educator, having recently served as a visiting professor of piano at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. Since 2011, he has been a member of the faculty at the Manchester Music Festival in Vermont and has given master classes around the United States. Originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, Mr. Elisade received a Bachelor of Music with honors from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. He holds Master's and Doctor of Musical Arts degrees from the Juilliard School in New York City. As mentioned, Julio collaborates and tours with violinist Ray Chen, and we will hear both of them team up on Tuesday, November 28th in Armstrong Auditorium. Ray Chen, as we've briefly discussed on earlier programs, is a young, charismatic, and supremely talented violinist making big waves in the musical world right now. Born in Taiwan and raised in Australia, Ray was accepted to the Curtis Institute of Music at age 15 Later, he won two of the world's most prestigious violin competitions, the Yehudi Menuhin in 2008 and the Queen Elizabeth in 2009. His Carnegie debut and Musikverein appearance were met with standing ovations. In 2012, he was the youngest soloist ever to perform in the televised Nobel Prize concert. And still quite young, he is active on social media with over 2 million followers on SoundCloud and an array of self-made quirky musical comedy videos on YouTube that have proven an effective tool in broadening the reach of classical music through humor and education. In his unstinting efforts to break down barriers between classical music, fashion, and pop culture, he is also supported by Giorgio Armani and was recently featured in Vogue magazine. In 2017, Ray signed to Decca Classics in a major new recording deal and multimedia partnership to add to his three previous critically acclaimed albums. Following the success of those recordings, Ray was profiled by The Strad and Gramophone magazines as... The one to watch. And watch him we will at Armstrong Auditorium in Edmond, Oklahoma on Tuesday, November 28th. The instrument he plays is the 1715 Joachim Stradivarius violin on loan from the Nippon Music Foundation. This instrument was once owned by the famed Hungarian violinist of the 19th century, Josef Joachim. I was able to speak with Ray Chen recently on the phone about his upcoming concert. Here is a little of that conversation. Could you start talking about your early experiences with music? What got you started?
1: What got me started was I was three years old and I had a toy guitar,
0: which I like to mess around with. I mean,
1: plastic little thing. Yeah. One day I decided to put this guitar underneath my chin and together with a chopstick, just like pretend to play this this new instrument, so to speak. And my parents, I think they were probably already gearing towards, you know, uh, some kind of classical instrument. Uh, And in their minds, guitar is probably not a classical instrument, even though technically it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, like violin or piano. We had a piano in the house, but then they kind of seized the opportunity, I think, and Mm -hmm. immediately went for the violin.
0: You now are an ambassador for classical music if I can call you that. Uh, You have these um, comedic and educational videos on YouTube. My kids love them. They all play instruments. One of them is a violinist, so we we love watching your videos. Talk about your work as an ambassador, if I can use that phrase, for this style
1: of music. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's uh, something that I'm trying to... I've been doing even before I started touring. Before then, I had only been really the recipient of outreach. I had not been the provider yet. I had not yet gone ahead and visited schools. I'd done outreach inadvertently for, for example, school concerts or like retirement homes, visiting those, mm-hmm. but it didn't yet click as to like, oh, this is important. This is something I should do more. Right. Uh, it was kind of just like, a, oh, well, here's an opportunity. Oh, there's an opportunity. It was more for the opportunity of performance rather than the idea that one should give back. I mean, after all, you know, which 10-year-old or 12-year-old decides, hey, it would be now a good time to already give back. You're still, you know, receiving. Uh, right. busy Receiving. And so I remember distinctly being in San Diego and playing a recital there on one of their, like, Discovery series. And then they were like, yeah, you know, educational outreach is really important to us, and we're going to schedule you nine schools in three days.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: This was like throwing you in the deep end, you know, 50-minute class sessions each you know, boom, 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 you're just like, you're just fully immersed in it. So that was such a great experience. I think it was from this, and then I started to gain confidence. It's like performing, you practice it, you think about it more, and then you just do it. When you're there, you you feel the moment. And I felt like it was very akin to what a musician, what an artist does, which is communicating ideas and trying to uh, inspire people. And especially just difference, it a difference being kid instead of mm-hmm. regular classical audience, which is typically older and older audience. Right. I really enjoyed it. I felt like here's a place where I can just be myself. You know, I felt classical music was always a bit a bit uptight, to be honest, mm-hmm. for me. I think my personality was always more relaxed, outgoing. Maybe it's because I grew up in Australia. Maybe it's because... Uh, My family's Taiwanese. (laughs) They're very open, nice uh, people. I don't know. For me, after coming here to the States, I always felt like it was a bit of a closed members club society. Uh And I didn't really enjoy that. I I couldn't really see myself ever being an inner circle member of such a society. I had dreams to, I had goals to, but, like, that was my goal, to be a great artist, be a great musician. But this other thing was just kind of like, wow, there's this whole other institution that you, one has to kind of jump the hoops to.
0: What your outreach is or what you're giving back, essentially, is you're trying to break down these barriers between, uh, well, a conception of classical music being this, this closed institution and trying to make it more accessible to everyone, younger audiences included. Is that right?
1: Yes. And I think that when I began doing this over the past few years, we've seen a huge change within the industry. I think when I began in 2009, it was the height of, oh, is Cosmic Music dying? That question. Mm -hmm. I think that the industry was in a dilemma. It knew the CD sales were just plummeting. Everything, like all the platforms on the internet were just coming out, like we're starting to really gain momentum and... Nobody had time, really, for classical music, because we were all caught up in this digital frenzy of YouTube, Facebook. Our lives have changed, been changed by these platforms. So has, I think, classical music. But I think I really caught it at the right time, because when I started making videos, nobody else in the industry was doing it yet. Mm -hmm. You're starting to see, as of, like, these past two years, like, the generation below me, they're starting to do more social media. -hmm. You know, I think they feel safe because it's already changed. I think for me, it was like definitely a risk. I didn't know if I would be, you know, taken seriously. I didn't know if that this was going to help or if people were just going to be like, "Wow, he's trying way too hard."
0: (laughs) But it did change Um, the landscape of of classical music as as you see it now.
1: Yeah, I don't think it was, you know, (laughs) like my doing, but certainly nobody else was doing it. So I felt like this is a great opportunity referring back to this whole society kind of the system i wasn't really uh i mean yeah sure i won great competitions but like i wasn't really um adopted by the society you know some uh artists tend to be more yeah adopted by the society meaning by like by the system we saw a little bit of that like what the system is like in, during the elections for example
2: <laughs> <laughs> like
1: you know with the DNC and the Republican Party, and then you see that, like, certain candidates are party favorites, right. and they've been brought up through this kind of system to be groomed, right? Uh, and classical music has that as well, Sure, um, but I felt like I was always an outside contender. But
0: you just broke in anyway, <laughs> using social media. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, I think that all these platforms gave me an entry point, and people were looking, the, the industry itself was looking for something. Hmm. And I think that it was
0: a good, good timing. Good timing. Awesome. Well, you're coming to Armstrong Auditorium on Tuesday, November 28th, and your pianist uh, Julio Elizalde. Talk about him briefly. How long have you worked with him? What What makes you two uh, such a successful musical pair?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I think one of the first things I can call him is a is a great friend of mine. So you know, I think that that from the get go already breaks through many barriers that colleagues often have to work through. Mm-hmm. We have been working together for 6 years now and it's been great. It's we truly to it, we have we have a lot of fun you know, going. To, you get to go to eat at different restaurants and stuff like that, <laughs> which ordinarily is a soloist when you're a guest artist with an orchestra, unless you know people in right. the city or you know people in the orchestra, you don't really travel with somebody mm-hmm. uh, people often ask me does, does your manager not travel with you and i'm like no not really it's, uh, because there's always the difference between pop and classical is that in classical you don't really travel with an entourage because <laughs> the setup is already there you don't need an you don't need the stage crew guys to go with you don't need these you know your roadies uh, your yeah you're <laughs> dry already. ice machine guy yeah, exactly. The setup is already there welcoming you in each city. And there is an artistic liaison. There is a appropriate people for each you know, stage crew, all that kind of stuff. So you just kind of travel by yourself.
0: But he's but there with you. having
1: somebody there, especially a great friend like Julio, it's, it's sort of a wonderful thing. And then musically, I feel like each time we challenge each other hmm. musically, we challenge each other to greater heights than what we could achieve individually think that that's probably the best part about Julio he's also thinking about stuff and then we share what we the knowledge we accumulate away from each other and that's really inspiring it's always fresh it's always we're always trying something new and it just keeps us going shooting straight forward
0: awesome you're opening the program with Beethoven's first violin sonata what makes that such a a great opening piece for the concert what do you love about that work
1: well, I think that it's a fantastic opener. Aside from being the first sonata, I think that it's also a more classical Beethoven. Beethoven kind of goes through, the, the, you know, especially in the string quartets, we often refer to them as like early Beethoven, mid-Beethoven, or late Beethoven. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, you know, the whole hearing loss thing, he becomes a, a, a more aggressive musically. Right. He becomes more angry and darker and grittier. And, and he's also spanning over, like, two periods, right? Classical into romantic. Mm-hmm. It's really inspiring to think about that he did that. He worked around his circumstances to, and for the music and, and for himself, for, for the music, but, like, most, yeah, more, most importantly for the music. And in a way, he didn't care about anything else. And, this, and that's what makes, in my mind, a true artist. He just, he served the music so much again and again that uh, never thinking that he was at all a master, but just knowing he was good, but like just serving, you know, putting himself in that position. And then slowly, uh, like people realizing that he was in fact the master and now we're all serving him, (laughs) so to speak. And it's like, that's what who I take a lot of inspiration from. And you—that's you, something that's so you can't see it at the time. Sure, he didn't—he didn't think, "Oh, I'm, I'm going to start a new era." Those things you can't plan for. No, it just happened, and he did it. And uh, anyway, back to the this particular sonata. Right. It's more classical in approach compared to his other sonatas, but it's also a strong opener. I think it really announces to the audience, "Here we are." Mm-hmm. I, as a performer, I often think about the. Psychology of the audience, where they're coming from. Uh, usually, you know, after work Tuesday, especially, you know, yeah, after work, after school, uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, there will be lots of students there, mm-hmm. um, and just yeah, that sort of mindset. Uh, maybe they had a quick bite to eat, and then they're here. Beethoven's a great way. It's a, it's a, it's you're still buffeted a little bit by the outside winds of that kind of busyness and Yeah, and then you settle in the concert hall, and the mind isn't completely settled yet. Mm -hmm. To bring them from, I think there's two ways to do it. You either just plunge deep into something that's like totally out of this world, or you meet them Mm -hmm. in something where they can relate to, and then you bring them in. And I think that that's what Beethoven does. It, It meets them there. Beethoven, he understands that. And I think that that comes out a little bit, even in the classical style, of this piece. It comes out and then you can kind of bring in the audience and yeah, it, it then the recital begins. So yeah, it's like you have to think about the overall arch of the recital. And then you know next piece, Saint Salens, is the more dark and stormy. Actually it's Saint Sollens himself was very taken by Beethoven's Kreutzer sonata and he this is what gave him inspiration for this sonata.
2: Mm. So there's
1: that link there. And Saint Solens ordinarily we think of as, you know, French, more light Introduction to Roderick maybe, or, you know, other assorted works, violin works like uh, Havanese. These are more lighter works, but here we have something that's very dark and stormy. And uh, he lived, I think, around uh, 90 years of like, uh, like which back then was like really old. And he saw kind of a whole cycle of that, an evolution of music. I mean, when he was born, less than 10 years after Beethoven had died. Mm-hmm. And when he died, Less than 10 years later, Leonard Bernstein was born. Right. So we're deep in the Romantic period now. He's growing up as the Romantic period is coming to its pinnacle, and he loves it. And then slowly towards the second chapter of his life, he's starting to see this weird second Viennese school coming out. There's the Webers, the, the Bergs, the Schoenbergs, like these people coming out of Vienna mm-hmm. who are kind of sick of romanticism, and they're coming out with this like music which infuriates I think St. Song's, he's, you know, <laughs>
0: he's
1: really against it. Right. And in a way, I don't blame him. For me, that school of music doesn't really speak to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, hey, if I don't, and, it and happened. I don't know about <laughs> Beethoven, who knows, but like St. <laughs> Song's didn't like it. it was good, not good enough, you know, I'm, right. I'm fine with that. Right. Uh, judge me if you will, but, right. uh, but St. Song's really didn't like it. He went against it. So he mm-hmm. clung onto that with forth and he just did everything he could to write to hold the romantic era right he got two people composers doing kind of the opposite thing, uh, one inspired by the other, but Beethoven just going forth into a new era mm-hmm. like directing it himself like, with his force basically right. and then I'm trying to desperately hold on to that.
0: Uh, yeah, that violin sonata that he wrote that, that you're doing after the Beethoven. It was he himself who said that it was a, a sonata only a, a hippogriff or a mystical mythical creature could play it. The fourth movement was so hard. Uh, how do you? Well, how, what do you think of that statement?
1: Oh yeah, I think that's a great statement to make. I haven't heard this statement actually, but it's. But you play the really fourth wild.
0: movement, so you know <laughs> you know how hard it is.
1: Yeah, it's really hard. It's hard for both uh, musicians. Mm-hmm. That fourth movement, it starts like already the the pot is simmering. And I mean, by the end, it just explodes. I mean, it, and people, they always start clapping like before you even finish the last. So. <laughs> like it builds into this. Oh and then it gets each level goes higher and higher it's almost like you're like having a about like your blood pressure is rising with the music it's <laughs> like emotionally you're just so like ah, like and 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 it's really fun to play and in the moment you actually when I'm on stage I'm just thinking about building this like Emotional thing, but when you're like listening to it an offstage, and I'm just like, "Wow, were we that fast? Was it like really like that?" It's like it's wow, it's so awesome.
0: That's obviously a great thing to end the uh, the half with, get people revved up <laughs> before the intermission. Absolutely. And then you're going to move on to uh, a lesser-known composer, Izai, his uh, solo violin sonata number four. And this is just you, right? No piano. What does this bring to the program? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I think that it's uh, for me. It's I like. Beginning the second half with something like solo, different change in sonority, but also in style. So mm-hmm. We're going, despite what Saint-Saens wants, we're moving forward <laughs> to, into the new era, and we go on with uh, Izayi. This piece is, yeah, it's it's a little bit like uh, for me, it's it's wonderful, it's something different. I think it's important to vary up the program a bit. It's not so atonal. I think it's um, oh, it no. draws a lot of inspiration from Bach.
0: Oh, um, yeah, definitely.
1: And I mean, there's one, one of the Yuzai sonatas that is just, you know, has direct quotes from Bach in mm, major mm-hmm. partita. This is not that one. But, I mean, it's hard to make the violin sound full in the hall. But Yuzai manages to do
0: it. And then a, a Spanish composer, the popular Spanish suite by Manuel de Faya, talk about what that's like to perform and what that brings. Well,
1: that's, again, something just, like, different, like going... Uh, going a completely like different style and kind of more romantic, but something yet very spanish they 're kind of each drawn from a different region of Spain mm-hmm. there are like different what i think different folk melodies from different parts of Spain, like one particular movie is called Asturiano, which is from Asturias like, mm-hmm. that's the place yeah, stuff like that i mean it 's originally written for voice,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: uh, I think that violin is a good. It's a voice kind of instrument, right and yet you can do also more than the voice. You can you can do a lot more. Uh, you have a lot more of the consonances. Uh, so in Spanish music, the that kind of castanets um, and the guitar-like kind of sounds you could make on the violin, mm-hmm. which makes it, I think, more spicy. Right, <laughs> and a few of those movements are definitely very spicy. So you get a lot of some sound like torero, like a bullfighter, and others. It, it's really it's, it's really um you got a lot of different flavors, and then the second half is more wild and eclectic right and uh then you we go to the gypsy famous gypsy uh melody uh the Chardash. Uh, Chardash. Yes. yeah yeah, even though it was like written by an Italian composer, but still <laughs> very it's a bit like uh we we do julio and I do a lot of different things and uh, like we improvise upon. The, the bare bones of the... the because, of, because the piece itself is kind of like a, basically like a skeleton structure. Hmm. I think it's up to the artist to fill in different things and, uh-huh. and have fun with
0: it, basically. And that's certainly a, a, a program closer uh, if there ever was one.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Brings, uh, brings the house down, yep.
0: Well, uh, and is there anything just in general that excites you about this particular program that you'll be doing at Armstrong?
1: Well... I chose the pieces, so <laughs> <laughs> I was never forced to play any of them. <laughs> um, I think that the program is probably one of my favorite recital programs that I put together. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to as much to it as hopefully the audience is.
0: Awesome. Well, Ray, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate talking with you today.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to coming to Oklahoma.
0: You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we have explored the famous Chardash folk style, Vittoria Monti's beloved Chardash, and we have talked about the two phenomenal artists coming to Armstrong Auditorium Tuesday, November 28th, violinist Ray Chen and pianist Julio Elizalde. We just heard a phone interview I conducted with Ray recently, More information about this concert, as well as all our events here at Armstrong, can be found at armstrongauditorium.org. That's armstrongauditorium.org. You can also follow Armstrong Auditorium on social media, and I'd encourage you to follow Music for Life on social media. Our handle at Twitter and Facebook is Music for Life PCG. We appreciate those likes, those comments, or any feedback you have for us. Special thanks to Joshua Sloan, who helps engineer all our phone interviews, and to my son Seth Malone for all his research and production support for today's episode. And finally, as promised, let's hear Vittoria Monti's Chardash one more time. We already heard it with violin and piano, as it will be performed on our stage on November 28th. But I want to end with this orchestral arrangement, performed here by violinist Nigel Kennedy and the English Chamber Orchestra. I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you soon at Armstrong. <laughs> FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.